global community forces have shattered U.S. cities. Nikolai Carpathia promises peace, urges global unity, as the military vows to eliminate the insurgent tribulation force. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say I have a plane What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of I Survived the Rapture. We are the podcast that examines the Left Behind book series so you don't have to. I am your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell, along here with... Your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Woo! <laughs> we, uh, we got off mic the second off the record about Tribulation Force. And then within a few hours, you're like, all right, I'm gonna delve into Nikolai. Hope it's good. And rejoice upon the Lord. It's not terrible. Yeah, uh, what you heard at the very beginning was actual, like, involuntary sounds of jubilation at the fact that, man, this one doesn't suck so far. <laughs> yeah, like, this, like, honestly, like, uh, this first third, one, there's not... M- much problematic about it. There's still like some stuff that we'll get to. Oh, we'll find some stuff. I promise you. It's relatively tame in that department as compared to the other two's like first third. It's actually kind of thrilling. We're in some decent left behind territory. There is plot. Things happen. There's no cookies. And yeah, there's no cookies. People take action. It is, it is a breath of fresh air getting into this third part of the book. I am so happy. And I'm just going to go ahead and say I, and I think you two have already read through to the end and uh yeah it pretty much keeps up the whole time yeah yeah so what do you say we go ahead and just dive right into this so we can cover this first third Uh, i think we're going in through around chapter seven so we begin with a really uh it's kind of a campy line oh you lowered that down too yep it was the worst of times it was the worst of times Yeah, it's not off to a great start. And I think it's worth noting that while I was uh, listening to this the second time, because I was going back through for my notes, Alex actually walked into the room and heard that opening line. And I just heard her walk out into the hallway and go, oh, God. (laughs) And uh, right before that line, though, we get the prologue where they make me watch Bruce Barnes die again. Yeah, we get put back through that again. That was a little traumatic. That kind of sets the tone for this book because even the uh one of the other lines on the first page the physical pain though it would stay with him for days would prove minor compared to the mental anguish of having yet again lost one of the dearest people in his life everyone's kind of going through the motions of grief 
in this book. It kind of is reminiscent of the first book when everyone's kind of like freaking out and like grieving that they lost loved ones in the rapture. This kind of sets a similar opening tone in that regard. Yeah, if this were a trilogy, and you kind of see this in movies sometimes, is that you have the first movie that hits big, second movie tries to experiment and do something a little different. And sometimes if it doesn't work, third movie comes back around and goes, all right, we're going to go back to what worked in the first one. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the Indiana Jones theory of, of trilogies and obviously not a trilogy, but I think that they course corrected from tribulation force of let's be honest, this kind of Christian fiction isn't getting heavily critically scrutinized. It's really more kind of like what the audience is going to be have an appetite for mm-hmm. compared to the first book. Tribulation force was a stinker. And, you know, we've said a lot about that. This seems to be like you just said, definitely going back, to that sort of sense of immediacy, that thrill that you got from the first book. So yeah, we begin with the weird Dickens homage. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. And I kind of want to take a second to point out where we are in terms of both the tribulation timeline and the prophecy timeline. Mm-hmm. The events that are going to play out throughout this book are specifically laid out. And I think this is where we really get into Tim LaHaye handing Jenkins a binder full of prophecy notes and Jenkins trying to make them fit. Yep. So we are 18 months from the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation, as we'll recall from the second book, officially starts when the treaty with Israel is signed. So the duration of that seven years of that treaty is going to be the great tribulation. I don't remember if they specified exactly how long it was from the moment of the rapture to the signing of that treaty, but that's where we are. I think I I, I got to correct myself again. Maybe we'll, we'll make this a recurring segment, but I think in one of the previous episodes, I wasn't clear on what the 18 months of peace was before all of the judgments started happening, um, before the rest of the the horses of the apocalypse kind of started to ride since we very clearly gotten to the second one now with war. The first horseman of the apocalypse in Tim LaHaye's interpretation is the Antichrist, the conqueror. That's already happened. The first seal has already been opened. The white horse has already gone off on its ride. And the act of Nikolai bringing all of the world together under what we're starting to see as the global community is that first judgment. So the 18 months of peace that we kind of time skipped in the second book, that was what they were passing over. That was the first horseman of the apocalypse. We are now good and ready for the second one. I look forward to that. I don't think that horseman comes in this book, but they're they're coming eventually. Oh no, no, it does. Like it's it's here. Oh, it does. Oh yeah, it yeah, does. yeah, yeah. This is war. So the red horse of the apocalypse. Oh, we're okay. at, we're at number two now. Okay, gotcha. All right, gotcha. We'll recall from the last book. War broke out between the global community forces. And the now United States of Great Britain, um, which is a thing now, I guess, the formerly sovereign nation of Egypt, and then a splinter faction of U.S. militia that is being led clandestinely by the kind of puppet president of the U.S. Yeah, President Fitzhugh. Right. So we get on to uh, Rayford starting to, to process his grief. He even says the line, he felt like he could curl into a ball and cry himself to sleep. So, you know, we're back to having sad boy Rayford in full force. Welcome back, sad Ray. Welcome, Welcome back. Welcome back, buddy. We, we missed you. And so we have Rayford, Chloe, Buck, and Amanda 
all in a car heading towards a New Hope Church, I believe. Yes, they're all kind of trying to get back to the church. Now, since there's a lot of action in this portion of the book and in a lot of them, I'm kind of trying to set the scene for people that are listening. Okay. In Chicago, a lot of the stuff that happens in these books is happening in the suburbs, kind of the outlying areas of the city. And that's going to be important later. New Hope is, I think, in Mount Prospect, which is a suburb of Chicago. So they are kind of trying to get away from the city center where like O'Hare and a lot of the, you know, the places around there are just kind of the greater Chicago area out to the suburbs. You can go ahead and assign whatever meaning you want to the fact that the suburbs are the safe place that you can flee to. (laughs) And I think there's some of that in the first book too, but there's a little bit of to go along with that. So they're driving down to um, towards New Hope. Uh, They get waved down by two global community guards and they yell out to them, you and the light weaken. Are you Rayford Steele? Like just calling out like a random car on the road asking, um, are you Rayford? Yeah, and I think that that's trying to communicate that like the tendrils of the GC already kind of have a surveillance apparatus up. Like they already know who he is. Right, yeah, because they, uh, how it explains like how even does it. It's like they were flagging down every single rental car because Carpathia got knowledge that he would have to have a rental car to get back to wherever he was going. So they just start flagging down every single rental car until they find Rayford. Rayford and uh, Buck start freaking out because they pull over to the side of the road because like, you know, there's no outrunning them if they know I'm Rayford Steele. Like, uh, I'm one of Carpathia's main guys. So, all right, I got to take this. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty realistic, right? I mean, he's he's big ups in the uh, in the GC. Yeah, and him and Buck, uh, he has too. He like, like, highest clearance. Yeah, they have that higher level of clearance, which helps them out later. Right. Buck instantly starts, again, put, um, going back to the themes of book one, starts like, be like, all right, I got some fake IDs here. They probably don't need to know that I'm with you because that would, like, raise some uh some kind of suspicion that we're traveling together at this point buck is still like a clandestine christian to carpathia so i think that's why he's trying to hide it yeah ray's mask off with carpathia about being a christian buck is not and they are also trying to keep their connection separate and that gets into something we're going to talk about later Mm -hmm. so put a pin in buck's kind of covert agent stuff right now we start getting a theme in this book where they all start wanting death because i highlight here now with the news of bruce's death buck one wondered they wanted to survive which is like a theme that occurs a lot in this book appealing like oh man i wish i could just die for and just go to heaven now i wish i could die in god's glory and just get it over with i don't want to go through this tribulation anymore you start getting like existential like I don't know if I can survive these seven years. Okay, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, go ahead. And I want to I wanna bounce this off you. So this is going to get a little spicy. So okay. just like in the first book, we're back to spicy Shane mode. There is a meme that goes around in a lot of, you know, anti-theist circles that in a lot of ways, Christianity is a death cult. I would half agree with you there because I can kind of see where that point's coming from. Where, like, yeah, it's of- ed- it's edgy. Yeah, like yeah. it's a, it's definitely an edgy meme, but like it, there's something to that of the you're not living for the current life that you're living. If that makes sense, yeah, yeah. and you're looking forward to death. Yeah, because even like the uh, the entire reason that a lot of people do become Christians is just for that guarantee of heaven. Like that's a lot of what the game that they're playing there is. Like, all right, I am dead 
dedicating myself to this religion so I have definite insurance on what happens when I die. So I can kind of see that perspective through like a roundabout way. Yeah, and I think that it's it's a release from suffering and like there's there's a lot of ways you can look at it. I don't ascribe to the Christianity as a death cult thing 100%. I'm kind of with you on that, that I kind of only half agree, but I do find some of that dialogue a little disconcerting. Mm-hmm. Understandable in context, like a lot of stuff, but like I'm always saying, you have to divorce a lot of this from the context of the story because of the audience it's talking to. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, and then, so the the whole idea of using the fake IDs quickly gets shot down because Rayford's like, oh yeah, he says, wouldn't you agree? Rayford said that regardless who I am, we're all in deep trouble. Buck was amused at that comment. They come and uh, search uh, the vehicle, identify Rayford as Rayford after uh, a little bit of like extra prodding just to really make sure that it's Rayford because, hey, we got Carpathia on the phone so we don't want to hand Carpathia a phone of a guy claiming to be Rayford Steele and not. They're, they're very thorough guards. Yeah, yeah. This is a good time to kind of talk about the split. So a lot of the perspective shifts in this book are going to go back to book one, whereas action is happening to Ray and then to Buck. And we split into a couple of other places too. But for now, you're going to split Chloe and Buck and then Ray and Amanda up. Mm-hmm. So Ray and Amanda are going to fly back to New Babylon with Carpathia. Ray's going to go back and do his job. Buck kind of gets left to defend the home front and kind of get everybody to regroup now that Bruce has passed away. There's a certain line and a certain way that they say it that is a, sets a theme for the book. Then he leaned and spoke to Buck. Sir, in the event that we transport Captain Steele to a rendezvous point, we'd be able to handle the disposition of this vehicle. People go through cars like clothes in this book. Dude, I have the dollar signs written in front of so many instances in this book. They burn cars, they burn money. Like, it is nothing to them. Again, this is another thing that, like, they make financial obstacles for the characters not obstacles. And I think that that's kind of a writing mistake. It makes them, it makes your characters a little bit invincible. Well, there, there's a bit of a difference between like the, the, the money absurdity that we'll get to in a bit. But in the first book, if you'll remember, they're like throwing money like crazy. Like they were kind of upper class folks. So they could spend money a lot more uh, flippantly to almost realistic goals. Like if you're, if you're f- fairly wealthy, you can kind of see, okay, they can buy like cha- uh, new suits for like certain dinners. So, okay, I can see this Th- in this book. It just gets dumb. Yeah. It gets ridiculous. Like, and we'll, we'll make sure to point that out as we go. Mm-hmm. We get a little bit of an update on the state of the world and the state of the war, because that's really where we're at. The whole world is broken out into world war three. DC is leveled. It actually talks about DC and New York back to back about how the capital of the world looks like the set of a disaster movie. It's a lot of nine 11 imagery and it was really uncomfortable. Yeah, we're still in 97. So 9-11 still hasn't hit yet in uh, real world terms. Right. So we're still in the pre 9-11 left behind. Mm-hmm. All of this is still kind of like non-alarmist to readers at the time. So just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, and I, I can't blame them for using that. I mean, we still use New York and other cities getting 
destroyed in our superhero movies. And like, I think people call it out from time to time. Like you watch your man of steels and you're like, man, I'm really tired of seeing people run away from like falling buildings and dust clouds. Like I'm, I'm kind of over it. Mm -hmm. While the characters are trying to drive away, uh, O'Hare gets bombed. Yeah. And Buck literally sees a mushroom cloud. And I just wrote, holy shit. Yeah. We're finally into where, cause I used the, uh, we've used the term Chekhov's gun a few times, but I even uh, specifically said Chekhov's nukes. Cause like at the very beginning, it's like, Hey, nuclear disarmament. And they're finally using them. And now that they're out of the bag, they're out of the bag. And we're, we're going to get a, a few cool vignettes like that throughout this book. Yeah. And uh, I actually kind of wanted to bring up a bit of critique, inter-Protestant critique of these books that I think has a slight bit of merit. Some Protestants, when they're criticizing this book series, will say that it gets bloodthirsty. People will, like just be enraptured by the violence in it, and that's why they like really um, uh, get into the series. In a way, I can kind of see it. Because after Tribulation Force bored me, when I'm like, oh man, they're finally using nukes, I was like, all right, I can kind of see where that uh, that criticism comes from. No, dude, I totally can too. Because I've had this conversation with people before about physical conflict and violence are an easy way to add stakes and to push your narrative forward. And I think we're falling for it right oh, now. Yeah. Like, people love action movies, people love video games, where your primary method of dealing with the world is through combat. This is one of those things. Like they decided they were going to write an action movie for this one that's kind of what we're in for the whole time now speaking of that buck starts driving and just won't stick to the roads because the roads are all clogged he starts driving through people's backyards and through like football fields and like all kinds of things like just destroying property Mm -hmm. left and right like he doesn't care put a pin in that too because we're gonna keep talking about a lot of the stuff that gets done by our main characters and kind of how it squares with their faith but yeah so he starts driving like crazy because he needs to get a new car and he's trying to find a dealership so he's driving like crazy trying to get away from the devastation running from a mushroom cloud but also like man i need a new car buck is not phased by this nuke he only cares about getting his ride yeah and you know what i'm we make fun but like i think this whole chapter is really snappily paced like no joke we find out that when amanda and ray get back on the plane uh nikolai's kind of electric like he's actually really digging this mm-hmm. this is where one of the many moments throughout this book that bears his name that Nikolai's mask starts to slip. We find out that they are going to do some more plane hopping to kind of protect Nikolai and that they're going to be switching over to a new plane called a Condor 216. All I'm going to say is 216 or 216. Remember that number if you're reading along. I kind of had that as a note because like there's a few numbers in here that I wonder, like, is there, like, a deeper meaning behind, like, the name of, like, the new, uh, some new, like, a new plane later on, Suite 216, so, like, like, I I did even, like, notice, like, some of these numbers might mean something deeper. They're definitely doing it on purpose. And we now actually, we have uh, the first mention of a new character, Mr. Leon Fortunato, a sycophant from the New Babylon office into the long unused administration office at the former Glenview Naval Air Station. And this guy, he's kind of interesting. He's kind of just a a lackey of uh, Carpathia, not uh, necessarily have much power in the organization, but still kind of like Ray, where he's always around Carpathian, like uh, attending to him. Honestly, this is going to be a weird uh, kind of face cannon that I've given him. But for some reason, just the name Fortunato, I kind of imagine him as like Adam Conover. Adam ruins everything. <laughs> well, Leon does kind of ruin every scene that he's in. So I, I get you on that. 
And uh, no, uh, no offense to Adam Conover. He's a he's a pretty neat guy. But for some reason, I, I just imagined him like the, the game show esque Adam Conover. He's mirror universe Adam Conover. He's he's a sleazy, like kind of ladder climber type guy. Um, kind of like we talked about Verna in the last book. He worked really hard to suck up to get to the position he's in, and he's not gonna let anybody that he thinks is beneath him like talk back to him. He's he's not a likable guy, mm-hmm. and he's definitely a lackey. So we close out this chapter with Buck making it to a Land Rover dealership where he purchases a fully loaded Range Rover. And I just wrote more dollar signs next to it. Yeah. Uh, But he does it by shaking, basically shaking this guy down. Like, oh man, uh, world's going to hell. Uh, You probably want to give me a deal on this car. Right. Uh, and there's actually a, a very small, um, I don't know, based on the other um, bits of this book where Carpathia says virtually nothing happened on the West Coast. I just wrote in the, the margins, oh, good, the liberals are safe. Like none of California gets hit. So uh, that's a safe haven. So far. Oh, no. Oh, well, we'll get there. Oh, yeah. So we get into chapter two, more Ray perspective. Um, we find out a little bit more about what happened to New York. Uh, they apparently vaporized the major New York airports. So Kennedy, LaGuardia, bye. Earl Halliday, the Ray's boss that he was having pilot uh, Global Community One, did make it out. And we find out that Earl is actually involved in some of these GC projects. He helped design the Condor 216. Right. And uh, so he's even coming along to uh, help Rayford learn how to fly it just because it's a, it's a kind of experimental aircraft that he developed alongside Carpathia, specifically to Carpathia's needs. So we find out that Nikolai is, you know, of course he's a Renaissance man. He does all of this stuff. So I did want to point something out when we cut back to Buck. We get a weird kind of breakdown of how a stick shift works because we have to explain it to the little woman about stick shift, specifically to Chloe. Mm -hmm. There's another thing where Buck is basically spending on his global community black card to get a lot of this stuff. Uh And he talks about spending the devil's money. Yeah. This is as good a time as any to talk about this point that I keep bringing up about Buck's and Ray's willingness to commit small sins, things like being rude to people, lying, deceiving, kind of shaking people down. We even get a little bit of physical violence later. Destruction of property, breaking laws, uh, essentially stealing in some cases. What do you think about that? Uh, Because I know we talked a little bit off mic about some of the ethics of that and how that squares with the Judeo-Christian ethic about when it's okay and when it's not to do what is in the Bible, a sin, yeah, but for, quote, greater good or whatever. There's even that verse, uh, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God what is God's. So if you kind of translate that to left behind, wouldn't to a degree it be give unto Carpathia what is Carpathia's, give unto God who was God's. They kind of do that to a little bit to a degree. Like, they're like, all right, I have to give myself in service to, like, the leader of global community. But like, I'm still going to hold fast to my ethics. But at the same time, yeah, like you said, like they, they, they start to do a lot of deception, which I'm, I'm not sure of the bigger picture of like how you're supposed to uh, do that. Because like, obviously, there's certain instances like I think we even said this, like, all right, if someone says, uh, says like, all right. Uh, turn in these people that are innocent because they have warrants out for their arrest. Sometimes you wouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get real Godwin about it, like, okay, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Okay, what if Caesar is the Nazis? Yeah. You know, are you going to collaborate with them? Mm-hmm. 
like clearly not. And there were a lot of priests and, you know, bishops and folks who didn't specifically yeah. based on their faith. And but there are there were some that uh some priests that like helped Nazis escape from uh, Europe. Yeah, we better mention, yeah, there absolutely were ones that did collaborate. So yeah. there are ones who didn't, but there are ones who did. Mm-hmm. It's just that thing that, you know, I've come to feel about the Bible is that it's kind of a, what did we say last time? It's not a map, it's a mirror. Yeah, because uh, we I even said, like, sometimes people will take, like, small bits of it uh, and, like, make that their entire thing for a bit. And it's kind of like, I, I hate to just say, like, oh, like, a lot of Christians only pick and choose, but it's almost like you use certain parts of it in a certain context to, like, get a desired outcome, which isn't wholly bad i guess like sometimes you can like go and get certain bits of wisdom that you need and help you through certain tasks but there definitely is like a certain level that you can do that where it becomes almost like an abuse of uh of power especially when you're within like an organization and you have like a certain stature when you think about the bible and i'm i'm going to try to show a little bit of sympathy to people who try to take the bible literally when you're looking at the bible as the inspired word of god and you're trying to take it all and let it guide your life kind of let it quote be a map i don't think that's possible because it was cobbled together in its own way with so many different authors i think it's a lot of scholarship says about 40 different authors at several different times different languages it was filtered and then canonized by a bunch of guys way later and a lot of that canon is still debated across different sects and denominations i don't think you have a choice but to cherry pick you feel me yeah and like uh, because even in like how i interface with the bible with my own personal journey like lately i've been kind of depressed and there's been one book of uh, of it that kind of like i've been looking like all right this is some good stuff like Ecclesiastes. It's it's a, it's a pretty good read. I definitely recommend it. Like it, it kind of has the vibe of like some like existentialism in there. I kind of compared it to like a myth of Sisyphus-esque book. It's uh, one of the books other than Revelation that I've been uh, kind of peering into recently. So good stuff there. But uh, it's like, it's just one part of it that doesn't necessarily fully fit in with the whole thing. I mean, and you've got like a lot of people turn to Psalms, like even people who are generally secular, you know, there's a lot of good poetry in there. And then you got like Song of Solomon if you want to get a little sexy. (laughs) When I was in middle school for Valentine's Day, I gave a girl a Song of Solomon's quote. (laughs) That's the book of the Bible that talks about boobies. Um, back to this car. This car is actually for spending six figures. He got six figures worth. It will go anywhere. It's indestructible. It comes with a phone. It comes with a citizens band radio, a fire extinguisher, a survival kit, flares, you name it. It has four wheel drive, all wheel drive, independent suspension, a CD player that plays those new two inch jobs, electrical outlets on in the dashboard that allow you to connect whatever you want directly to the battery. So this thing is like a tech palace for Buck. It is absolutely what you'd expect from like a top end Range Rover. Mm -hmm. Um, So like when you see a Range Rover out on the road, you're like, I know what that guy paid for. When he says those new two inch jobs, I'm immediately like GameCube discs. Is that that what? Because I I think that's what he's talking about is GameCube discs. Buck can play. uh, What's a good GameCube game? Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, he can play some Super Mario Sunshine while on the run. Because uh, it has a TV in it. Yeah. like, And this was written pre-GameCube, obviously, because GameCube was, I think, 2000, 2001. Yeah, those little mini discs, like, that's the size I think they're talking about. It also mentions a TV, and dude, in the 90s, 
I had friends who had like big vans that had TV, like tube TVs in them, like CRTs. Oh my God. I wanted one so bad. A lot of them were those CRT VCR combos. So we could like watch movies when we went on road trips and stuff. Mm -hmm. I wanted one so bad. And uh, we get back into uh, the whole money thing that we were talking about earlier. And this is where they explain all of the the money thrown around. Well, part of it, like this isn't even like the, all the source which we'll get to, but Buck slams down his global community weekly credit card and Chloe's like, do you have like a limit on that thing? And he's just like, well, normally there's a $250,000 limit, but there's a special code at senior levels that make it literally unlimited. Buck has unlimited money. Yep, Buck has unlimited money. Ray also has the same clearance level as him, so we can probably assume Ray has unlimited money. Nikolai has unlimited money. So we're back to that whole thing of finances are not an obstacle for these characters. Mm -hmm. And I think they try to sort of paper over that later and be like, oh, I probably shouldn't use this on the GC credit card. But like, the damage is done. So they have like a little bit of like, if you want to get into semantics, like it's not necessarily though that they're doing it for moral reasons. It is very much though that they want to get, they don't want to get caught. So yeah, it's it's still like, they're, they're kind of being deceptive of like, oh man, do we use daddy Carpathia's money here? No, no, he shouldn't. He'll, he'll look at the tax bill and no. He's going to look at my expense reports. I don't know if you've ever had to file expense reports and get called into the office. Like, did you, uh, did you buy three large pizzas while you were on that trip in one day? Actually, I had to have that conversation with a boss once because I bought a lot of food and they thought that I had a guest over on a month-long trip. And I was like, nope, that was all for me. The reason why was because I was very high. (laughs) So we get back to the church and we reintroduce Loretta. And I just want to say right now, I have known sweet old ladies like Loretta. It just kind of breaks my heart just a little bit to see what she goes through. Yeah, because like, again, like they kill us again with this like because there's a lot of moments what happens is buck comes in uh, and he hears like a, a printer like just printing non-stop and there's this old lady loretta had been a southern bell and she just goes people been calling i don't know what to tell him he couldn't survive that could he pastor bruce i mean he couldn't still be alive now could he you know did, did, did y'all see him and like I can, I can just hear this sweet old lady being like, "When's Bruce coming home?" And Buck's got to be like, "Oh man, uh, well, he's uh, he's gone." Yeah, it's it's pretty heartbreaking. I like Loretta as a character, and she is she is a super sweetheart. What we find out is that Bruce had told Loretta to start printing all of his sermon notes and all of his research and all of his files off of his computer before he went to the hospital. There was a certain command that he told her to print, which is, is that, is that a thing? Like, could, could you just do that? Like back in the nineties, like type in a command and just prints everything. I don't know. I don't know what operating system they're supposed to be using. I don't know if it's like DOS or like whatever. I, I don't know. The command is print BB asterisk period asterisk, which it, that doesn't look like any lang- like program language I've seen, but I could be wrong. It might be like there's enough stuff in there for like, you know, basic and DOS that like it could be something, but I'm not an expert. If anyone's seen that command, let us know. Yeah. If you're like, hey, because it's supposed to find anything with a file name beginning with BB. Mm-hmm. that it prints out. And it turns out it's like 5,000 pages of notes. And I just wrote in the margins, oh, Bruce is LaHaye. 
Yeah. That's, that's what his, that's the role he's filling. In death, Bruce has essentially left the rest of the Tribulation Force characters like a Sean Connery, Holy Grail diary, like from Indiana Jones, with all of his research, all of his notes, all the information that he has scoured about what's going to happen for the rest of the seven years. Kind of from beyond the grave, Bruce is like, no, I already did all the research for you. Here's a huge dump of that information. But gets this idea of like, wait, like we have like all of this imprint of like Bruce. What better way to honor him than turning this into a book? He's like, all right, we need a thousand copies of all of that printed on two sides and like bound into book form. Loretta's like, that'll cost a fortune. Buck's like, don't worry about that now. Pull sunglasses down. I can't think of a better investment. I think it's also worth mentioning that apparently Bruce seemed to have had a premonition that he was going to die. The whole reason that Loretta was doing that was like right before he died, uh, he called Loretta and was just like, hey, print everything. And uh, that's why Buck comes in. He has to break the news to Loretta because like just this morning uh, or however long ago, she had talked to Bruce. So she went from the last thing that she uh, heard of Bruce was like, hey, print everything to finding out about his death. And I think that that's something to point out because with premonitions and things like that, in this kind of Christianity, the gifts of the spirit are something that get brought up time and time again. And especially for me, when I grew up in Assemblies of God, the gifts of the spirit were something that were very active, whether it was speaking in tongues or delivering prophecy or delivering what they'd call like a word of encouragement or like somebody would come up and be like somebody who didn't really know you all that well. They put their hand on your shoulder and say, Gavin. I understand that you uh, had a flat tire today and I just want to tell you God's looking out for you and everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And you had had a flat tire that day and there's no way they could have known. Like, so the more you level up in your walk with the Lord, the more of those gifts are bestowed on you when God thinks it is important. Mm-hmm. I definitely like people that would always uh, in, at my church talk about having stuff like that as well. Like in a, in a slightly more subtle context, they, they would usually like attribute like big things that happened in their life. Like all of a sudden, like, oh man, the Holy Spirit was there. So yeah, I, I've definitely felt yeah, that. Yeah, but you were Baptist, so y'all didn't get to like raise your hands and speak in tongues. Y'all weren't allowed to do that. I got in trouble at church for, for like, uh, for like dancing too hard. So yeah, they didn't even let, they didn't let you guys dance. It was like, it was like you were in that footloose town. <laughs> On the news, they refer to Ray, like if we want to talk about uh, some leveling up, uh, this is the first time where he's referred to as Elder Rayford Steele, uh, which is interesting because like they they call him that a few times in the book. But when is he he referred to as that? And in what context? uh, Well, Buck records a message uh, to like the entire church for the uh, okay so it's to the church yeah and they call him elder rayford steel which that is the first time in the series that they have but it's not the last yeah i completely missed that and i guess that is sort of the role that he's starting to fill as like a church elder not elder in like the mormon sense where it's like an official title but just like kind of like a deacon or just an actually literally elder figure in the church that's kind of a leadership figure Okay. Um, so we find out Ray and Amanda back on the plane. Um, Ray kind of looks back and sees Amanda in deep conversation with Carpathia. Mm-hmm. That is something that's not going to pay off until later, but it is relevant. So we want to remember that. They land at Dallas-Fort Worth. Carpathia puts on a disguise, which is a hat, or it's a funny hat and a big jacket. Oh, man, he's pulling from the Buck Williams school of disguise. <laughs> Just wear a funny hat. That's all you need. 
And uh, Earl, the first time that he sees Rayford uh, when they touch down is, get away from me, steal, you scum. Yeah, Earl's doing some uh, some OPSEC with Ray. Like, he he pretends to not like him because as soon as he gets him in the plane and starts showing him around, he's like, all right, listen, I figured this might help you out a little bit. And he shows him a button inside the plane underneath his pilot's chair where he can eavesdrop anywhere in the plane so we're back to doing covert deceptive stuff but ray now has the ability to press a button and be able to listen to what's going on anywhere in the plane now it doesn't tell how he controls it or how he doesn't just get filled with noise but apparently every speaker in the plane is also a transmitter Mm -hmm. a recording device so and none of the bug sweepers have found it so ray now has the ability to eavesdrop on carpathia while he's flying him my favorite part about that is just like earl's kind of like no bug sweepers are gonna find it they already did and if they and if they do find it i'll just tell them like i thought you uh, wanted me to put that in there oops which i think is like a dumb excuse but okay yeah i mean well earl is already pretty sure his number is up yeah so he's just doing whatever he can he thinks carpathia might want to close that loose end or tie up that loose end and he actually says, hey, tell my wife I love her, basically, which is real sad. Yeah. We end out chapter two with Buck purchasing a set of computers. I think he gets five. Yeah. Uh, from a guy named Donnie Moore, who's kind of the church tech guy. The position of the church tech guy is a time-honored position at every church I've ever been to. Because you got like a, a lot of old people that don't know how to use technology. And then you have like this very saintly figure like, yes. I, I do know how to open up the music app to start the music of this session. I have been the church tech guy. I have been apprenticed under multiple church tech guys. And so I, I have an affinity for Donnie. Now he does say he is going to provide Buck with a computer with no limitations that can't be traced, a laptop more powerful than any desktop, to which I just said, all right, dude, all right. Yep, we get some very boomer ideas of how uh, of how computers work. Yeah, and and even like because this is the '90s, uh, he's just like, oh, I got another feature for you. What is that? Oh, you know we can do video conferencing where you can see the person you're talking to when you're talking to them, which is pretty uh, simple now. But like, I guess at the time, I was like, whoa. Oh yeah, people thought it was the Jetsons. Um, and he says they're going to run about $20,000 a piece, which my God, like I'll go and say this, the most expensive computer I ever bought or that my family ever bought was still in the 90s. It was our old Macintosh Performa. And I think it was like 3,500 bucks something like that in the 90s like it was a huge investment and that kind of technology has only gotten cheaper but twenty thousand dollars a piece for these laptops is insane and uh, this is the first instance where he's like oh man I, I can't just lay this on carpathia's like card i'm gonna have to pay for this myself we're like where does he get a hundred thousand dollars i mean as a writer i have no idea i mean i guess this is that prosperity gospel stuff yeah probably something like that so we hop on into chapter three. We talk a little bit more about the secret eavesdrop button and we get to use it for the first time. Before that, we find out that New Hope has started loaning out their rapture cars. Basically, it's church. Pretty much everybody got raptured. All their cars are left there or are left at their homes. So they just kind of start looting these cars. Right. And I want to quickly touch on something that uh, happened in, right at the beginning of chapter three, where Rafer goes, it wouldn't have bothered Rafer to crash and kill himself 
himself along with the Antichrist, but he didn't want to be responsible for innocent lives, particularly that of his own wife. So that's that's another one of the bits where like they kind of start flirting with the idea of just death for God. Dude, the slow burn and ramping up of Ray just flat out wanting to murder Nikolai Carpathia begins in this book Mm -hmm. and it doesn't stop like there is the we're gonna keep on coming back to that until we get about halfway through the series when it all kind of comes to assassins that's the one (laughs) yeah we find that out that he's totally willing to just nosedive the plane and he's like maybe i could take him out which is dumb like considering that like dude you already know how this is supposed to go down do you believe it or don't you like you don't serve a purpose here and not to speak from the christian perspective but i'm gonna do that for a second you have a role to play and it's not that because it's not the appointed time. Kind of like with the witnesses, like we shall not be struck down until the appointed time. The appointed time for Nikolai to bite it is three and a half years in. We ain't there yet. Right. So some more money gets thrown around. Chloe goes and buys five cell phones, five 90s cell phones. She specifically told like, don't, don't scrimp, get like the best that they got. And then we cut back to Ray again, and we learn that four of the loyal ambassadors and then the remaining three, because remember that three ambassadors, kind of the the kingdoms, uh, the Ten Crowns that we talked about last time from Revelation, three of them turned coats. You have the, the UK one, the US one, and I guess the one that was over Egypt or whatever that, specifically that area. Those three have turned traitor and have either been killed or are going to be hunted down. So there are only seven remaining. Right. Which is part of the beast imagery in Revelation. The seven, the ten. I think it's seven heads with ten horns is the way the beast is described. The seven heads are the seven remaining ambassadors. And we find out, we hear Nikolai say, we'll trigger Chicago and the Bay Area. Yeah, it's uh you were saying about California. Whoops. Uh, boom, yep. The even even the liberals get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you couldn't just let them get away scot free. They have to pay for their sins. Uh, he reminds them, like, do you gentlemen understand the significance of a 100 megaton bomb? To put it in perspective, history books tell us that a 20 megaton bomb carries more power than all those dropped in World War II, including the two that fell on Japan. Yeah, they start talking in real big terms about the bombs that they're going to use. Like, they are literally going to glass cities. They're going to wipe them off the map. They're going to get rid of Montreal, Toronto, Mexico City, Dallas, and of course, Washington, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Like, these are like a lesson to the world. Like, hey, you mess with us, we'll just decimate entire cities. Yeah, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I wrote in my notes, this is Alex Jones-style conspiracies of population control. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. Yeah. Ray tries to get a warning out to Buck and Chloe, like, stay out of Chicago. That was a first strike. The rest, it's going to go down. So cut back to Buck. We get Verna Z re-entering the story. If you guys remember Verna from last time, she was the ladder climber at Global that does not like Buck very much. She keeps him back, hey, got several urgent messages. Carpe has been trying to reach you all day and then Rayford Steele has been re- uh, trying to reach you all day. It's like, oh yeah, give me Rayford. She's like, you're, you're going to turn down the potentate for Rayford? Like, what are you doing, Buck? Yeah, when you're looking at this, for the next couple of chapters, there's a lot of phone call juggling and a lot of like desperately trying to contact people via phone, which was 
kind of present in the first book. It's that whole 90s, like, oh man, I got to be able to get in touch with people, but, you know, communication is limited. So that's a lot of where some of the drama comes from in this third section. But what do we find out from Hayim about Rabbi Ben Judah? Because he's the third call that reaches Buck. Is that he's still alive? Oh no, that his entire family got murdered, right? So it's real gross because uh, Rabbi Ben Judah's family is murdered in a public spectacle after he unveiled his findings that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Not just murdered, they were abducted, slaughtered, and his house burned to the ground. Yeah, they were beheaded. Like oh in the God. street. They make it seem like a, what we would probably know today is like a, like a live stream execution. They make a spectacle of it. And it really, you talked about bloodthirsty. Like it's not only bloodthirsty, it kind of exoticizes folks who are Orthodox Jews and basically saying like, oh yeah, they would totally do this, which is gross. Even Chaim says like, we, we got to get Nikolai's help on this. Like surely he's the most powerful guy in the world. He might not like Rabbi Ben Judah, but at least he'll like step in and like protect a friend of mine. Like Nikolai would do that for me. And Buck's like, dude, seriously, don't get him involved. So after he gets off the phone with Haim, Verna keeps on like messing with him, trying to be like, hey, you got more calls coming. You got more calls. And she pokes her head through the door. It's like, hey, I'm not your secretary. Because he keeps on like, tell him to hold, tell him to hold. So Buck does the weirdest thing. He literally climbs up onto the desk and like full blown sprints towards the door and kicks it closed, rumbling the wall. Yep, Kung Fu Buck is back. Before he does, it's like, I'm I'm coming across this desk to kick that door shut. You better not be in the way. I thought that was, I don't know. That, that seemed a bit out of play. Dude, that's almost an assault. Like the woman is standing in the door and you kick it like the karate kid and she like screams and whatever. Like, and I understand that it's like a tense situation, but like, hey, you kind of committed a little bit of assault there, my dude. Like Buck just, just slammed the door in her face. Don't don't like, you don't have to go all Bruce Lee on, on Verna. Oh, dude, you're her boss. Just be like, you need to leave. I'm your boss. You need to leave. Like, talk like a person. It's just so frustrating. Use your words, Buck. And then we end that chapter with Chicago getting obliterated by bombers. Now we find out that it's not nuclear because there's no fallout. So they're using extremely powerful bombs, but they are not nuclear. It's a strategic non-use of radioactive material is what they call it later on. Right. And this happens like while he's on the phone with Chloe, because Chloe calls him like, I'm being pulled over by the police. It's terrible. Uh, I made an illegal U-turn when I was speeding. Buck's just like, oh yeah, outrun them. What? Outrun the police. And then as soon as he says that, he hears an explosion on the phone, tires squealing, a scream, silence, and then the electricity goes out in the Global Community Weekly office. Yeah, so, uh, hey, my new wife, uh, you know what's a good idea? Run from the cops. Which, like, I understand that he's she's also running from the impending devastation, but, like, at the same time, it's just like, all right, cool, run from the cops. Okay. <laughs> I, I kind of like your style. Not very Christian of you, but I'm, I'm here for it. I mean, they are, like, global community cops, so it's, it's kind of like you're defying, like, the big bad guys, so I, I guess I can see it. it. It's cops that work for the devil, so, like, that's that's another part of this that's like, okay, if do we have to obey them if they're cops that work for Satan? I guess not. And then everybody kind of scrambles out of the building. Buck actually gets with Verna, and they speed away from the scene, kind of putting their feud on hold while all this devastation is going on around them, which is, you know, pretty realistic. Yeah. We make it into chapter four. 
Nikolai makes an address to the world. It's his first of several that he's going to do throughout the book where he, you know, I come to you today with a heavy heart. I'm a man of peace, but sometimes my hand is forced. Real kind of saccharine, like he knows exactly what he's doing and he's playing the crowd really well, which, you know, he remains my favorite character. He's able to do this with all the pomp and circumstance and, you know, inside he's clapping with glee that he's getting to obliterate these cities, but, you know, he's able to mask it for the camera. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then Buck gets Verna's car uh, because they, they reconcile their differences, like you said. Buck has to leave immediately, so he takes Verna's car and uh, arranges for uh, a, a car to come get Verna via L- Loretta. So Yeah, so Loretta is going to pick Verna, Verna up, and they're going to put her up in Loretta's place because downtown Chicago has been obliterated. We end Nikolai's speech with him saying... There are no more plans for counterattacks. And he gives almost a Palpatine line. I didn't write the exact line down, but it's very like, but my resolve has never been stronger. (laughs) (laughs) It has that same Palpatine energy again, which I just can't get enough of out of him. Come on. Like it's, it's a good speech. Yeah. Like, uh, like Carpathia gets a lot of cool speeches in this one. Honestly, it's his book, his headliner book. Um, there's a couple of weird lines because we cut back to Buck and he's now driving Verna's car trying to find Chloe. Um, he's on Lakeshore Drive trying to find Chloe. He says, in short, the car was a dog, which is like I've never heard anybody refer to like a, a clunker or like a kind of old beat up car as a dog. <laughs> I, I've never heard that either. I think that might be like an old timey thing. But he also says uh, when he's trying to locate Chloe, he's trying to call her. He's actually trying to call like her OnStar or whatever. You guys remember OnStar that's on her, uh, on the Range Rover and he can't get through. Yeah, I remember OnStar. One of uh, of my family had an OnStar car that you'd accidentally hit the button a few times and like have to like cancel it very hastily. Yeah, because I think they would charge you like per use of it. So he's trying to, he's trying to contact her. He can't, she's not picking up. And he's driving through um, across down Lakeshore Drive, you know, outer Chicago, and he's trying to find her. And he says, this was more her bailiwick than his. And I had to Google what a bailiwick was. The bailiwick. So bailiwick is apparently an old, a word from like older modern English, like early modern English, when you had like bailiffs and shire reeves and stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, like back in, in like medieval times. And a bailiff was someone who had jurisdiction over a bailiwick. That was a an area over which they had jurisdiction. Okay. It just means jurisdiction. Like, gotcha. like, oh, this is your neighborhood. Like, but the specific choice to use that word was so bizarre. We get another longing for death moment where uh, it says, ever since he become a believer, Buck had considered the privilege of giving his life in the servants of God. In his mind, regardless of what really uh, killed Bruce, he believed Bruce was a martyr to the cause. There's risking, the M word. He's like, yeah, risking his life in traffic may not have been as altruistic as that, but one thing was sure of, Chloe would have not hesitated had the shoe been on the other foot. So like, yeah, he's like, we're all willing to die for each other right now, which is, that's touching that they're all like in it together. But there you go. You're, you're just back at the, man, we just want to be martyrs. Yeah, and it, it is such a Christian fantasy in some corners, and in some it's not. Like, that was not a value necessarily that I was brought up with. In church, they would talk about the fantasy of being a martyr and, you know, what a what a, a privilege it would be to die for your faith. You even got the Fox's Book of Martyrs by uh, uh, John Fox. Like, that's uh, one of the most popular... Uh 
like big Protestant uh, supplemental materials is just about martyrology, which, you know, the Catholics have the same kind of thing, but Protestants also have a version of that where they're like, hey, anyone that's died for the cause, we got to like compile them just to act as an example. Yeah, you hear the story of the Apostle Stephen a lot when you're growing up in Protestant church um, as the first martyr, the first person to die for Christianity, and then you, you move forward. But saying that you're a martyr, that Bruce was a martyr, he wasn't killed because of his faith. Now, you could make a technicality argument that like he contracted the disease because he was traveling and spreading the gospel. And if he hadn't have been doing that, he wouldn't have died. And that makes him a martyr. I, I'm not going to buy that. I don't go there because to be a martyr, you have to be put to death because of your faith. At least that was my understanding of it and how I was taught. If you know something different, you know, shout us out in the comments or whatever. I don't buy that whole martyr thing. That doesn't really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. So Buck just keeps on going like deeper and deeper into the carnage and even gets past a certain point where people just aren't like paying attention to him. Like, all right, he's this deep into a prohibited area and he's so confident he must be all right. Because even like he gets like past a checkpoint where there's like cones and stuff and he just gets out of the car, moves the cones. Someone's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, I'm pressed. And they're like, all right. And he drives on. He even... Even like once he gets past the cones, he stops his car again and puts the cone back. Yeah, it's kind of like putting your shopping cart back, right? I I guess so. We come back to Ray again, and Ray knows, because these aren't happening exactly at the same time, Ray knows that the area where they are currently touched down in the Bay Area is about to be next on the list. So when he moves Amanda over to another plane to fly back to Chicago, he's like, oh man, if we leave the ground, this whole place is going up. So he stalls to make sure that her plane leaves the ground before they take off. So he stalls, he kind of lies some more, he kind of basically wastes as much time as possible until she can get clear. And I talked about the lying a little bit again. You know, is lying to the devil or people working for him a sin? I I think in this instance, like, I don't know, it is definitely obscuring the truth, but you're obscuring the truth to like explicitly save someone's life. So I I, I think in this this case, it'd be all right. I honestly wish the Bible were more explicit about that. Mm -hmm. Like there are other religions that have a lot of thought and a lot of scholarship to go into that, especially in like inside their holy books, but not here. So I think the Bible is kind of missing that. And and I wrote down just kind of a fact here. Some of the apostles went to jail and were crucified. You think about like Paul and Silas and stuff for the apostle Peter, like they went to jail and were crucified. Like, but I think some of them also tried to escape prison and God actually busted Paul and Silas out of prison. I think it's conditional whether you choose to go to prison, but it's always conditional with the idea that if God wants you out, he will get you out. Right. Okay. Because I think with Paul and Silas, there was an earthquake that basically ripped the jail open and they were able to get out because God was like, no, you're not done yet. So I think it's, it's, it's about putting your faith in God and being led in the moment. So if we could boil that down to, is this right in terms of the Christian ethic? Is it a sin? Is it not? What is God telling you to do in the moment? And if God says it's fine or he enables it to happen, it's not a sin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which I'm not comfortable with that either, but you know, that's just me. Buck uses magic to a clearance, like you said, to kind of get past some of the cops. The tire gets flat. He's on foot for now. 
I was just going to say, we have the first literature reference in this book to another big work. Uh, the barricade that shut down the Lakeshore Drive and the exit looked like something from the set of Lame is a Rob, which that's not the first big uh, literature reference in this book. And when we get to the next one, I got a big rant, but that won't happen this episode. <laughs> but just uh, I, I find it funny that they mentioned the barricade from Lame is a Rob. Yeah, I know. It's a weird, like, if you know Lame is, they're like, oh, that's a weird image. Like, and but I mean, it yeah. worked. Like, I know what he's talking about. Like, it's kind of a ramshackle barricade. And he starts thinking back to Verna, and he's like, oh man, okay, now Verna knows I go to this church. She knows I know these people. She could sell me out. So either Verna becomes a believer or I'm dead. We kind of wrap up with more looking for Chloe. We wrap up with Buck and then we go to Ray. Um, but one of the last things Buck says is, man, I'm sure glad my wife's not catty or a nag, you know, not like those other broads. Ugh. It's just more casual misogyny, but um, oh, Buck also does a cuss. Buck does the cuss? Yeah, he actually says he swears. They don't say what he says. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He cusses and then is mad at himself, which is really funny. I said heck. So we get back to Ray. Um, we have Mac McCollum back again, his first officer from earlier in Tribulation Force, who's going to be a character that's going to stick around for a little while. And Ray gets a small amount of vengeance on Carpathia, just a tiny, tiny little bit of vengeance. He takes off without Nikolai buckling his seatbelt and he throws him to the back of the plane. Yeah, everyone on the inner, he even like hits the intercom button as soon as he does it. And everyone's like, Carpathia, are you okay? And he's just like, eh, eh, eh. Uh, sorry about that, folks. This is your captain speaking. I hope that satanic little sh** has a nice knot on his head. <laughs> and then we end chapter four with Chloe finally getting through to Buck. And we're into chapter five. And we're going to pump up the pace a little bit here because we're running a little short on time. But I think the most important thing that kicks off chapter five is the trigger. And San Francisco gets attacked. San Francisco, another one bites the dust on that city. He even hears the thing go off because he he hits the button and they say trigger came the whispered reply. That must be like a really eerie thing to like constantly have to hear like, oh, there goes another nuke. Yeah, he gets to hear all kinds of all kinds of like mustache twirling plans from Carpathia in this book. And we're going to get to some more of them in either in this chapter or in the next one. Mm -hmm. We find that Buck finally finds Chloe. Uh, she's in bad shape. The Range Rover is basically slammed in between. It's like up in a tree, but also slammed against a concrete like embankment. Like, you know, those kind of slanting concrete things that, that kind of go up by an overpass. Mm -hmm. So that's where the car is. And we have a long scene of Chloe basically dangling from the seatbelt and their whole left side's messed up. And she's trying to reach the floor and she's trying, they're trying to get the Range Rover down. So there's a whole lot of that. And which is, a, it's a pretty good scene, like him trying to take care of her and get her down. This is one of the moments where he, he, he tries to pull jokes at the wrong time where he goes, I just have one question for you first. Is this how our married life is going to be? I'm going to buy you expensive cars and going to ruin them the first day. Which she's like, that's not funny, Buck. And he's like, oh, sorry. No, it's not funny. <laughs> like, dude, stop. Stop quipping. You're not good at it, so stop. We find out that she actually spun out and hit a cop car. And she's hanging there by the seatbelt, like we said. We cut back to Ray, and he's listening in. He's doing more eavesdropping. And this is one of our primary methods of exposition for the book. Mm -hmm. um, we hear Fortunato say, we'll need replacements for Hernandez, who was another pilot that Ray was flying with, your fiancé, and Halliday. They're going to take these guys off the board in one way or another. Um, we find out that Nikolai thinks Hattie's job has passed her by, so it's going to be exit Hattie before too long. Oh, man. Um, and he goes, well, you know, I wanted her. 
So it's more like the sexual moralizing that, of course, the Antichrist would be a philandering, you know, deviant. If you if expected Hattie to have like, because like I was hoping in Trib Force, like, all right, she's kind of starting to play the role of a trickster. I honestly was like, oh man, Hattie's going to get some cool dark magic powers. By the looks of this book, it's not going to happen. They, they do her dirty in this book. Yeah, and she gets to become the brunt of more moralizing. We're going to hear later. We find out Earl Halliday is dead, like you predicted. And Ray uh, goes back to his quarters and has a sad boy cry. Yep, more sad boy Rayford. Yep, it's, it feels good to be back. Sad pilot hours. We need, like, at least a few Rayford cries uh, a section, or it doesn't feel like left behind to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we get back to Ray on the plane, and the cabin's growing more quiet, and they're just kind of engaging in small talk. And then he kind of falls asleep and then gets awakened again. And he walks back into the main cabin to watch one of the televisions on the plane. Everyone except Carpathia ignores him. And then he starts like dwelling on, oh man, like if uh, Carpathia is bad now, what is he going to be like when Satan takes over? This man's already the embodiment of evil. How can Carpathia get worse? And on TV, he sees live reports from all around the world that the red horse of the apocalypse war is finally here. Yeah, man. And the answer to if he's bad now, what will he be later? He will be even more awesome. That's the answer. But the second thing I wanted to highlight is this is the red horse. World War Three is the red horse. But in LaHaye's interpretation, the devastation from World War Three is what ushers in the famine slash disease and death. So basically, Carpathia being the white horse, his rise to power brings about the red horse. The devastation of that brings about the pestilence and death. Mm-hmm. So they all kind of fall like dominoes, which is, I think, a, an interesting way of trying to make, rather than having those things spontaneously erupt. Since the four horsemen are kind of a box set, one thing causes another, which causes another, which causes another. And yeah. by the end of it, the world's population is going to be down by a quarter. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So moving on to chapter six, Buck is bleary-eyed at the breakfast table only him and loretta were up they they start getting into talking about oh man we got to start getting ready for these arrangements for bruce's body for the memorial service chloe is in the hospital or no she's not in the hospital she's uh she's just she's walking around on a cane she's she's recovering but she's in bad shape because uh, we forgot to mention there's a little scene where basically they get chloe out of the car and then let the range rover kind of slide off the tree and hit the ground and they're very lucky that it's still salvageable yeah buck was asked to come to new babylon by carpathia and he says you know what i'll pass that was what carpathia was trying to call him about he goes you know what i'll pass i actually have a lead that i'm trying to hunt down in israel he's trying to get to israel because Hayam asked him to help dr ben judah right so on the company dime he's gonna go to israel and nikolai's cool with that he's like yeah sure he doesn't tell, tell him about ben judah because nikolai hates the guy but he's gonna be taking his time in israel now buck is gonna spend a lot of time in israel in the rest of the book okay He has to make his way there, and not a lot of active airports right now, not a lot of active airlines. So we get a callback to a character from book one. We get good old Ken Ritz. 
Ken Ritz. Know you're busy, Mr. Ritz, and probably don't need my business, but you also know I'm on a big, fat expense account and can pay more than anyone else. There's more money. Ken Ritz is like, all right, where are you to go? And that's where I talked about, seriously, making money not an obstacle is really kind of not great writing. It's very surreal. Like, it doesn't even feel like Tony Stark throws this amount of money around, at least this obviously. Like, clearly Tony Stark has a lot of money and he can afford a lot of cool stuff, but like, the kind of garish way that they throw the money around and constantly are mentioning how much money they have is you said some real prosperity gospel kind of stuff. Yeah. Buck talks to Hyam and says, our mutual friend said you would know who to talk to about his whereabouts. We're not going to get to who that is yet, but you guys can probably guess, and we're probably going to get there in episode two of this book. There's a lot of cloak and dagger stuff this time, a lot of double talk on phones. Like I said, there was a lot of phone stuff. There's even some more like kind of like a shady stuff, even coming on like how they're getting back to New Babylon, because they're not flying directly into New Babylon. They're flying into Baghdad first and then using that as a jumping off point to throw off any militia forces that might be trying to uh, take down a global community or the this new condor. And then Nikolai gets on TV to make another address and he specifically says, continue to resist naysayers and insurrectionists. And I actually wrote, it seems like Jenkins was listening to our criticisms of, hey, people wouldn't take this whole globalization thing lying down. There'd be a lot of people who would rebel. Well, there you go. We find out that there was more Ray eavesdropping. We actually, the topic of Dr. Benjuda comes up in conversation around Nikolai. Yep. And we find out he really does hate this dude. Nikolai says, well, he should have expected no better after what he did. And he says he'd help the Jewish zealots kill Benjuda himself. Oh my God. Yeah, but vows to remain neutral for Chaim. We find out he doesn't really care about Chaim, calls him an old fool. That's my one thing where I break with Carpathia a little bit. It's like, dude, all right, I like you, but I also like Rosenzweig, and I think I like him a little better than you. So lay off, dude. I mean, and also we have the whole like uh, worker abuse that they do to to uh, Rayford where he's just like, all right, when are we leaving for New Babylon? Probably not for about four hours. Well, international aviation rules prevent me from flying again for 24 hours. And he's like, well, then how do you feel? Like, why can't you fly? I'm exhausted. Too bad. So they're mean to, there's mean to Ray going against some worker policy. So it's clear that the 144,000 are clearly getting to Nikolai after the big evangelism by Ben Judah and by the witnesses, others that have been saved and are now evangelizing themselves as per Revelation, are really mucking up Nikolai's whole demeanor. He hates these people, which, I mean, is understandable. They're literally counter to his divine plan. And then we get Ray eavesdropping on what becomes Carpathia's big master plan for this next phase. So he's rolling out the next phase of his global community plan. It is to take his almost unlimited money and start investing heavily in the global South, countries that would be considered socioeconomically disadvantaged. And I just wrote, oh no, how awful. That's one of the the weird parts I highlighted too, where I'm like, you trying to make this as a bad thing? Well, it's that right wing, like for them to win, they're going to take something from me. Yeah. Um, and how dare they, because I worked for this. It's that whole right wing, you know, Republican kind of ethic is that we can't give to these whole countries because they didn't work and earn it. So, and then if we raise them up, we're going to be fundamentally devaluing my standard of living and how dare you. Gotcha. That's why that's painted as a negative. And then if he follows it up immediately with the fact that he's going to pay for this with taxes, which I say again, 
Oh no, how awful. Oh, and it's not just with taxes, because when we get into another like hysteria talking point where they're going to go to a cashless society and that's how they're going to be able to collect all these taxes is because with the uh, cashless system, every transaction will be electronic so that they can uh, rack up like 10 cent tax on all electronic money transfers. So every transaction will be electronic. So it'll generate more than one and a half trillion dollars for global community. And as well as a $1 per barrel tax on oil with 10 uh, cents per gallon tax of the pump on gasoline. Yeah, which I mean, if you're not really paying attention to the numbers, like you're like, yeah, cool. All right, that probably works out. Yeah. But the thing to take away from this is this is some real John Birch Society, Alex Jones, like conspiracy tinfoil hat stuff, like New World Order stuff that Tim LaHaye believed in. Mm -hmm. and he believed this was all going to happen and that is where he's going to institute market the beast stuff which isn't going to pay off until way later there's a lot there's a book down the line which was really going to start working on this this is where they're laying the groundwork you know electronic money transfers and moving to a cashless society that is a sign that the mark of the beast is coming and you can't get away from it Mm -hmm. We find that the GC is now going to own two-thirds of the world's oil you know petrochemicals are going to be and as they kind of still are a drill baby drill yeah right yeah you get some uh sarah palin-esque like oh we're just gonna some environmentalists like tried to cap off the oil fields in alaska but we're we're just gonna drill in alaska yeah weirdly like neutral on environmentalists they don't come down on them as hard as you would expect kind of a right winger to um they don't even throw them like a any shade at them we find that nikolai names the council ambassadors the seven loyal ones our seven heads as sovereign kings of their own kingdoms so we are moving from ostensibly a governing, you know, oversight body in the form of the global community to full authoritarianism. That's where we're headed now, which is what LaHaye was afraid would happen. Again, this is very, I keep saying John Birch Society. You guys remember that from the, the episode zero. That's what we're doing here. Democracy and voting will be suspended. He actually calls out the poverty, the famine, and the disease. And he talks about population control. He says this poverty, famine, and disease for a time is a good thing because it's going to reduce the population less mouths to feed it's very malthus or it's very kind of thanos like it's we're going to take these limited resources because there are too many mouths to feed and we're going to allow this devastation to sort of reopen the world cleanse it so that we can all live a better standard of life but we're going to help that population control along a little bit by putting more money into things like abortion, assisted suicide, and the uh, neutralization of the handicapped and the infirmed. The point of the book we're getting into, it's starting to vaguely resemble, and even with the fact that we have a global community, it really reminds me of, obviously, uh, some of the books that they read before writing this series was Algis Huxley's Brave New World, because a lot of, like, global community reminds me of the world state from that book. As well as kind of uh, themes in The Giver, which I'm not sure if The Giver was out by this time. I'm not sure. I'll have to double check. But the whole thing in The Giver where all the old people get killed when when they're no longer. Giver was 93, so it was out. Yeah, so I'm getting like a lot of themes of that in in here. It's it's a lot of baby's first dystopia. And also, uh, I'm not sure if we touched, I don't think we touched on this yet. They're like, all right, we took over media. So now we need to take over all industry and commerce. I'm not trying to 
own all of it because that would be too obvious. Uh, we we just want to control it. Um, this is all LaHaye just having a massive like like having a, an Illuminati seizure. Just like it's, it's all the Illuminati. This is everything that I've, I've studied. I've read a thousand books on the Illuminati. This is it. <laughs> My name's Tim LaHaye. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't sound like that. And we find out that actually Nikolai is doing his Jedi mind trick mm-hmm. on all of his his kings in the room. No, I didn't catch that. He's getting and he basically tells them all, "You guys, when I'm done speaking, you're gonna suggest all these things to me as if it." Oh, uh, okay. Right. So that that was that subtle thing. Okay. Yeah, he hit him with the whammy again. I wanted to point out all of this stuff, this Illuminati stuff, is printed on the Georgia Guidestones, which is another, like, conspiracy theorist hub. Do you know what the Georgia Guidestones are? Yes, I actually do. Like, it's, uh, I've actually, I actually wanted to visit them one day just because of, like, how bonkers it is. Yeah, they're and, not uh, that far from where we are. We need to take a field trip. Yeah, we need a photo op for our, for our socials. Yeah, totally. So the Georgia Guidestones, for those of you guys that don't know, um, they're a granite monument erected in 1980 in Elbert County, Georgia. They're a set of 10 guidelines inscribed on the structure in eight modern languages and a shorter message inscribed on the top of the structure in four ancient language scripts. So the whole point of the Georgia Guidestones is that they are apparently an idea of how to run the world. And it's 10 rules, almost like 10 commandments. One, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Two, guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Three, unite humanity with a living new language. Four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Five, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Seven, avoid petty laws and useless officials. Eight, Balance personal rights with social duties. Nine, prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Ten, be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. Yeah, the, ugh, these are weird. And like, I'm not sure who built these, but that, that, that is just like a strange thing to spend your money on. Apparently in 1979, um, this was a man with the pseudonym R.C. Christian actually commissioned it, um, but nobody really knows who that was. Ugh. And they get defaced all the time. They get vandalized. It's like, they're like, ah, oh, it's a new world order. It's like the guys that tried to rip down or did rip down the uh, the monolith yeah. in California being like, Christ is king. We don't need no aliens here. People like that vandalize the Georgia Guidestones all the time. Right. And something that in these Guidestones, I'm surprised that they haven't tried to do in the books is uniting humanity with a new living language. Like they, you think like if since the whole Esperanto uh, fad that uh, went on, that would have inspired them to be like, all right, in addition to the one currency, world, one religion, one government, they go to one language. I'm not sure if they do that yet. Like they pull a babble, but- I actually don't remember. That seems like something that they would do. I don't remember if they do though. Okay. Because you have Nikolai being a polyglot, and like that being a big part of his his charm. And then you have the witnesses speaking and everyone hearing it in their own language. So gotcha. I don't know if they ever do that, but that seems like too good of an illusion to pass up. Right, yeah. I think they did like a Tower of babel thing. But anyway, right. let's go on to chapter seven. Well, um, I, one of the last things I wanted to say about chapter six, Ray prays to God in that moment to let him kill Nikolai. Ah. Yeah, Ray's like, put me in, coach. I need to kill this dude. I hate this dude. I This dude is evil. Please, 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 please let me kill him. So, so I guess this is kind of setting up like who our fated assassin might be. 
Right. It it is actually laying the groundwork for that. And I think those dominoes fall in a pretty interesting way by the time we get to that book. Okay. Um, By the time we get halfway. So like you said, chapter seven, and we're going to bring it on home. I'm going to be honest, dude, not a lot happens in chapter seven. It's a lot of recap. Yeah, this is short. Only about uh, 13 pages in the book that I got. Ken Ritz is landing the Learjet in Easton, uh, Pennsylvania, just to top off the tank before heading on because it's going to be a long journey. Buck starts talking to Ken about about his faith because oh do i seem too weird as you now uh as you did to me when you're propounding the space aliens theory ken's like no not really because uh buck tells him his full story proselytizes to him he's like you'd be amazed at the number of people just like you have run into this saying that like this is of god like uh more people are believing with uh, than you than with me yeah ken starts kind of opening up to it a little bit and we actually get a couple of pilot characters in both this book and the next one that start to kind of open up to the message a little bit. They get a little bit more like, ah, I, I kind of see where you, you Christians are coming from on this. Let me hear more about it. So you're giving your characters opportunities to witness, which is a value you want to instill in your in your Christian audience. So the plane with Ray finally touches down in New Babylon and everybody's going to get off for a photo op. And we get the beginning of the end with Hattie because what does she do? <laughs> During a press uh, thing, Hattie runs out and is just like super excited. She does everything except squeal in delight, as the book says. She's starting to embarrass Carpathia. She leans in to kiss him. He he just puts his cheek to her instead of a full mouth kiss. And then Carpathia like whispers something sternly. Then Hattie looks absolutely like stricken and just starts bawling and Carpath is like oh man like she's just really struck with grief uh ain't, ain't that sad we're all really uh we're this is all difficult for us right now but you know we're gonna things are gonna get better I cannot imagine what he hissed at her whatever he said it really got to her and like this woman pretty much made it through the entire rapture without crying in the middle of it so I whatever he said really got to her and I can't even imagine maybe it was just like if you ruin this press conference I'll break up up with you or something? I don't know. I, maybe it was all like that. Maybe. I don't know. So then we hear back from Ritz and Buck. Buck spends a lot of time basically recapping book one and two, just kind of reminiscing about it. And he mm-hmm. starts thinking about Chaim. And we end this chapter with learning a little bit more about what's happening with Dr. Ben Judah. But before that, he actually says, and this is something that kind of bothered me, he said that Chaim was naive to the point of childlikeness, which I was mm. like, eh. I mean, I guess, like, I I never saw him as that kind of character, but, like, if that's what you're saying he is or what Buck thinks he is, like, I guess. We hear a little bit more about Dr. Benjuda's family's murder. They get real grisly with it. I actually wrote, Jesus Christ, these books are bloodthirsty. (laughs) Like, actually taking what you said earlier, I actually wrote that in my notes. And we end by learning that Dr. Benjuda did escape and he has gone into hiding. And I think that's where we're going to pick up next week not too bad like this isn't as painful as the last one this was actually fairly uh fairly entertaining no, dude not at all this was this was actually good like i enjoyed this to the point where normally i will read in sections like i'll wait till the next week i, I actually kept it playing like i listened to the whole thing so we'll we'll be able to get into the rest of it but like i legitimately enjoyed this one this is a big turnaround from the second one this is a big turnaround from tribulation force you know oh yeah definitely so yeah we'll leave you guys on not as much of a cliffhanger as we normally do um, but that gets us to chapter seven and we'll pick up again next week as we continue on through nikolai rise of the antichrist here on i survived the rapture i've been shane bazell and i've been gavin russell 
And until next time, don't look at the nuclear blasts when they're happening. A few characters do that, and that's really bad for your eyes. So don't do that. Yep, don't do that. All right, bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Pray.